Good evening, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kafer, Sunday columnist for the Denver Post. Tonight, we're joined by Patricia Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. George Brockler, host of The George Show on radio station 710 KNUS. Chris Rourke, managing editor at Denver Business Journal, and Elena Alvarez, reporter with Axios. Let's start with allegations of shenanigans. Two House Democrats sued their caucus and Republicans for violating open meetings laws. Meanwhile, several news outlets sued to force Denver Public Schools to release a recording of their discussion of district safety policies. They say district violated open meetings laws. The Colorado Court of Appeals granted the district a temporary reprieve while it considers a longer delay. What's at stake here, Patty? Well, open government and transparency is what's at stake. The two legislators who are suing are really an interesting pair because you have Elizabeth Epps, who is as progressive and left as they come, and you have Bob Marshall, who was elected this fall. He's from um, Highlands Ranch, and he was involved in the lawsuits against the Doug Coe Education Board. So he was fighting them because they didn't have open meetings either, and he won. So he knows what he's talking about when he's joined with Epps to... Suspicions confirmed. There's a lot of talking behind closed doors. But still, the DPS takes the cake. They are the worst. You know, they're, they're in risk of being held in contempt because they haven't released this. Well, we all hold them in contempt. The way the DPS is behaving now is abysmal. And you look at what happened to Kurt Dennis, who's the principal of McAuliffe, the only principal who's been there. Everyone loves him. And he was fired essentially for talking and being transparent about what the DPS was trying to make him do that he didn't think was safe. It's a shame, and we're going to hear plenty more about it. We certainly are. George, you've been an elected official, so you've lived under these rules. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I'm all about the transparency piece. I am a firm believer in the idea that uh, it doesn't matter that you have the right to vote if you don't have the information to make an informed decision. And that's where these things really bother me. Interestingly about this lawsuit, though, that's going to take on the, the House of Representatives, if you read the complaint, and sadly I did, uh, it goes on to say that almost instantly after being sworn in, both of these legislators realized that the, the leadership of the House was engaged in all of this criminal conduct, and they were aghast at it and waited until just a few days ago to file the lawsuit to bring it to light. Uh, I want to see more transparency in government. When it comes to DPS, this is a lot like in trial when uh, someone tries to get evidence in and you scream objection at the top of your lungs. All it does is draw the jury's attention to it. Like, what don't you want me to hear? I'd love to hear what that is. Um, I think the other thing, though, and it needs to be broader than this, is if you look at just things like email retention rules and policies for the governor, for the AG, for the others, they're like 30 days. I'm sorry, can't we keep those emails for eternity to make them available to folks from the media or the public to get to know what was going on? Sunshine is the best disinfectant, and it's the only way to maintain transparency and to be a watchdog. And, you know, there's no surprise here. It's not that just the big government types that you hear maybe skirting the law. It happens in small towns. I think our you know, community newspapers are so important to be covering city councils and school boards. It doesn't matter the size of the entity. They all have to adhere to the same laws. And quite frankly, it happens a lot of times. Sometimes it's due to ignorance, but sometimes it's to kind of get around the system. And so anytime I see a suit come forward, I support it, I look into it, and we absolutely need that transparency to be watchdogs. I'm guessing, Elena, that you agree. 
<laughs> You're, you guess right. I do. It's really hard to be a journalist right now with all of these, you know, secrets. It's really hard to keep the public informed and, as George said, have them vote accordingly with all of the knowledge they have when, you know, all these closed-door meetings are happening. But when we talk about the big picture from, like, a political perspective of what's happening in the Capitol, I think this is really interesting because this is Democrats suing Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and as we saw at the end of last year's – or the last legislative session – Colorado's Democratic Party was starting to split on major issues. Mm -hmm. And this is yet another example of an internal battle, a, uh, you know, a, a split. And so I'm curious what this will mean for future legislation uh, when it comes to the Democratic supermajority, and also what this will mean for potentially how it will impact Governor Polis's agenda. Again, this is Democrats against Democrats. There's a lot of, you know, tension happening. So we'll see. Great point. In more political news, Next month, Colorado's GOP Central Committee will consider a change to the party's bylaws to close its primary to unaffiliated voters. Meanwhile, Republican State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer announced she will not run again next year in Colorado's highly competitive 8th Congressional District. Finally, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's challenger, Adam Frisch, hauled in $2.6 million for the quarter. Does that spell momentum? George. I preferred our last topic. So this one, uh, that was a pass the popcorn moment. Uh, this is one where I tell the kids, don't look at the car wreck on the side of the road. It could get ugly. Um, on the Republican side of things, listen, I'm a big Barb Kirkmeyer fan, so having the state senator decide not to run, I think, is a loss for us because she would have, could have, should have won that seat. Lauren Boebert, I wouldn't count her out. A lot of out-of-state money's flowing in for Adam. I imagine the same is going to take place for Congresswoman Boebert. The one that bothers me the most, though, is I think that the method that this particular subgroup within the part uh, the party central committee is trying to use to get out from under the primary. And that is to say, well, we can't achieve 75% vote as the law requires to opt out. So what we're going to do is say, pass a rule that says, if you don't come to the state central committee, where we vote on this, we're gonna presume that you're in favor of the opt out. I've scratched my head. I can't think of another thing in any election cycle where you say, if you don't vote or don't show up, we're going to count you as a yes vote. I don't know anything like that. That feels like something that is not only anti-democratic, but anti-common sense. Um, I don't know how we win if our answer is we'd like a small group of 3,700 people to make the decision for everybody else. That's a tough one. Yeah, I disagree with George. I think she's out. Um, when you look at $2.6 million in a quarter, Plus, we haven't heard anything from the Boebert campaign about how much they've raised in the quarter, so I'm thinking it's not as glorious. The other thing is I've talked to a lot of her constituents who are, are really bothered, and the straw that broke the camel's back was this vote on the debt ceiling. She spoke, she was very outspoken against the, the debt ceiling um, vote, and then she missed it. She was caught running up the stairs of the Capitol, and a reporter told her that the vote had already closed. Then two days later, she was back in her district, and she launched a, uh, a video on Twitter saying, oh, you know what, I didn't miss the vote. I just simply chose not to participate. Now, she had gone down to the Speaker of the House and had registered what her vote would have been. She said, Speaker, I was unavoidably detained, but I would have voted no. That happened the night of the vote. Then she launches this video, and then over the 4th of July weekend, she said, well, I wasn't going to vote, and then I decided at the last minute, I, I really do need to vote, and I just missed the vote. So I don't think her constituents are happy with, you know, kind of that dancing around, plus Frisch's money coming in. I think that 
is bad news for her. What are your thoughts, Elena? One race and topic we're really interested in is what's happening in the 8th Congressional District. Um, so the seat is actively being targeted right now by national Republican groups hoping to flip it. Um, and Democratic Representative Yadira Caraveo, who of course beat Barb Kirkmeyer, um, is clearly fearful. We know this because we are seeing what she's doing as a freshman in Congress, and she's actively courting bipartisan support um, from even fierce conservatives so far as Ted Cruz. Um, the question really remains, though, whether voters are going to receive that message and really pay attention to this bipartisan path she's trying to carve. Um, so it's going to be a hot race, that's for sure, and we're, we'll cover it closely. I think the third congressional district is just tired of the shenanigans, which we were talking about earlier. Her personal shenanigans, her fights with Marjorie Taylor Greene shenanigans, her failure to stay on the same explanation of why she missed that vote. So people are tired of her. It's interesting because Adam Frisch you wouldn't think would be such a strong candidate. It's just because she is so widely disliked uh, or simply is considered an embarrassment. So I do think she will go down. Uh, Barb Kirkmeyer, I'm glad she's staying in the legislature just because she can be a real voice of reason there. And she said she can make more of a difference there. She's already talking about bringing back land use discussion. So she's taking on serious issues. It's too bad she's not going to run in the eighth again. She'd be an interesting candidate, a second round. But I like what she's doing there. And as for the primary, are you kidding? We have these two political parties. More than a third of Colorado voters are unaffiliated. Why should the two parties have a lock on who the only candidates we can vote on? Great point. Other kinds of shenanigans. Excel Energy is being sued by insurance companies and individuals for its role in the 2021 Marshall Fire in Boulder. The utility company is raising rates, meanwhile, and the hackles of customers who feel they're paying for the company's lawyer fees, shareholder returns, and employee bonuses. You could say people are a bit fired up. Chris? Hello. Yeah, we really saw the lawsuits come out this week. Individuals, uh, insurance companies, whatnot, hundreds of people. One suit in particular is really interesting. There is a couple that's engaged a Chicago law firm who just last month got a huge settlement from an Oregon um, power company, uh, uh, Pacifico, or Pacific Corp, excuse me. And there were billions of dollars involved, billions of dollars. This comes at the time when uh, PG&E in, in California has had to declare bankruptcy, so we'll see what happens to Excel. And it does come at a time when Excel's asking for greater rate heights. We saw the PUC just say, no, 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 cut it, cut it way down. I think 45 million is the number that the PUC allows now. It's a buck 56, I think, per household. But I live in a tiny apartment, and every time I open my Excel bill, I am frightened at how high it is. I can't believe it. So we'll see what happens to Excel going forward. Yeah, you're not the only one. Elena, what are your thoughts? Chris nailed it. I think we're looking a lot to, you know, where this case could go, what could happen to Excel, and PG&E is a great example. In 2019, the California wildfires, it, they had to declare bankruptcy. They had to set aside billions of dollars to, to cover their liability for, you know, not properly maintained equipment. And what we've learned is that, you know, the hundreds of businesses, insurance companies, individuals that have filed a suit this week, that's not the last. Uh, we've heard legal complaints are going to come out in the hundreds over the next couple of months. So Excel is, is in trouble. And they're, like she said, under fire, not just for that, but for, from the governor's office and advocacy groups for repeated requests to raise electricity and natural gas uh, rates. So it wouldn't be fun to be an Excel staffer right now. Odds aren't looking too good, but you know, we'll certainly 
watch and see what happens. I'm interested in how mad consumers still are over Excel. So 150 people were signed up at the meeting on the 11th, and they are hot. Even though the increase was cut down by two-thirds, people are hot. It was after this winter when they were freezing and their bills went up. Now we're getting advice because they're hot and their bills are going up. There is, you know, you're being chastised if you leave the light bulb on in your refrigerator. <laughs> people are mad at Excel because Excel made, what, $21 billion last year? What do you predict is going to happen with this suit? Well, one, I mean, in addition to trying to make things right for the family and the community, and I hope that happens, uh, the folks that be getting rich on this case may not be the staffers, but it will be the attorneys on each side of this. And I just want to say, I'm available. <laughs> uh, 155 insurance companies have filed lawsuit here. Uh, so many, I didn't even know we had 155 insurance companies. Honestly, I keep thinking of the little gecko. Uh, I went ahead and created my own insurance company to become the 156th <laughs> to jump on this bandwagon because who doesn't want to take a swing at Excel? Um, I would like to have seen this turn into something more definitive by the DA's office only because I'm inclined to want to see people held accountable if there's a criminal violation. But this is bad news. Elena's right. I mean, PG&E, a huge corporation, went bankrupt over something just like this. Uh, maybe this is the last days of Excel. We don't know. When you win, you take us all out to dinner. Done. Colorado's Common Sense Institute is releasing a new report. I should say it just released it. Um, what are the highlights, or what should I say, maybe I should say lowlights about the crime? Let's start with Elena. Sure. So I'm just getting briefed on this report. It just came out, and I'll let George do more of the talking because he contributed to it. But I will say that one stat that stood out to me from this report is actually that crime in Colorado is decreasing. Mm -hmm. It decreased by 3.3% on average uh, across the state in 2022. And we got to celebrate that uh, because there, it's been really bleak as far as crime stats go. Another uh, hopeful stat that I learned this week after talking to Denver police is that uh, youth-related homicides and murders are also uh, down this year compared to last. So we'll have to dig into these you know, downward trends to figure out what's driving them. But um, I think you know, we should stop and pause and celebrate a little bit of hope at a time. You know, Colorado has been struggling since the pandemic with really steep rises in crime. So it's nice to see a change in that graph. A little drop is nice, especially also in rape. Uh, rape has also gone down, which I think is um, is noteworthy. That's right. Um, their other report was Swiftonomics, which is kind of a great title for a report. Makes me want to read something very dry uh, because it's got a great title. Patty. Well, that the Common Sense Institute, the same week, does the crime report, but also analyzes how much Taylor Swift, is her tour is going to mean to the economy here. When they're talking about, what, 60% of the amount Red Rocks brought in in 2022 will be coming from these two nights. Now, where does the money go? Not all to the city of Denver or the surrounding area, but it's fascinating that they did the report. And frankly, you were probably surprised you didn't know Taylor Swift was coming, right? Because there has been no publicity about it. <laughs> I have to give Michael um, Hancock credit. He got mocked for not naming it Swift Week or whatever. But more power to him. Let's pay attention to local music. Nice if you like Taylor Swift, if she's coming to town, but we don't have to name it Taylor Swift Day. We can name it George Proctor Day because of the Done. Your Common Sense Institute involvement. And you had Mitch Morrissey on yesterday talking about the report. I think it's interesting that car, thank God, car theft is going down, mm -hmm. except at DIA. 
Um, so you might as well just stay in your car and drive wherever you're going so you don't have to go through those long lines and add to them. That was good news. Adams County didn't have a lot of good news, but I'm sure George can parse it out better. I did participate as a Common Sense Institute uh, criminal justice fellow along with Mitch Morrissey, the former Denver DA, in the formulation and crafting and some of the editing of this report. And, and while I agree, I'm happy to see crime uh, turned down. One thing I want to emphasize is this was not pandemic-related crime. Our crime has been surging for about the last decade. And while there are shoots of green in there for sure, like that 12% decrease in rapes is a real deal. We should all be happy that, and try to keep that thing going lower. But if you look at some of the other decreases, like in homicides, we had an 8% decrease in homicides, which makes you say yay. And yet you look at that and that is less of a decrease than we've seen in New York City, than we've seen in Los Angeles. Uh, crime overall is concentrated. And what we've discovered is that even though Denver and Adams County make up about 21% of the population of the state of Colorado, they account for 40% of the crime in the state. About a quarter of all violent crime comes out of Adams County. Uh, so there are things here I hope that decision makers, policy makers, and voters can kind of start focusing on and figure out what are the ways forward so that we can try to see some gains here in, in, in terms of uh, peace and public safety. Twenty-seven billion—that's uh, a lot of money. It's um, a lot. And what is it? Eight point eight million per murder. Um, is that just investigation as well as the the work that the the lawyers have to do? What does that look like? It, the, the cost also includes the tangible costs, which include the the prosecution piece, investigation piece, but the intangible costs too. And if you look at the loss to the community, the the potential lifelong amount of of income that takes place, the pain and the suffering, all of those things. I will point out though that twenty seven point two billion dollars is more money than we had as a state budget back in two thousand and eight, mm -hmm. which is when we started to notice crime starting to surge, and it's also the budget of PBS 12. <laughs> you know, Chris, I'm glad that uh, the Common Sense Institute crunches these numbers for us. Um, as your news organization covers this, uh, do you see things changing? Well, I looked at the report, and it's good to see that crime is coming down, especially in, in the first few months of 2023, it showed that. I, I you know, I, I think about does culture determine policy or policy determine culture? And I don't, you know, we can change policy, we can beef up enforcement, but I think attitudes towards crime definitely need to change. Uh, I myself was a victim of crime this spring and it cost me money. And when um, I put it on my social media that my truck had been broken into and my computer had been stolen and I made it public, so you leave yourself open to criticism, mm -hmm. you know, some of the posts were, well, why did you leave your computer in your truck? And so I think, you know, sometimes we have a habit of justifying crime. Well, they, he stole that car, but he needed a place to stay. And until we change our cultural view of crime and make it a little tougher, that crime is wrong, um, you know, we have a battle there. Certainly policy enforcement all need to be up to. My, my uncle was, was hit by a drunk driver and that a year ago. It's been in the post and everything, mm -hmm. and yet that... that uh, a young, uh, you know, young 20s drunk driver is still out free, has not paid for that crime, even though my uncle can no, probably never bike again. Mm. Mm. Elena, I have a follow for you, which is, so the stats about youth crime going down and homicides going down, which is really interesting. It's counter to the narrative we're hearing right. in a lot of places right. about it's going to be another summer of violence. Yes. 1993, which actually wasn't as violent as the year before and the year after. But so that, so crime, juvenile crime is going down. Yes, and we're not hearing that. I was shocked to find that out. I was writing a story about how uh, this community, the city, is investing in um, 
more mental health professionals at uh, school, at Denver Public Schools this fall, to try to attack the root causes of what's causing these giant outbreaks of kids to shoot each other. Um, and so in doing that, I was expecting Denver police to be like, you know, we're, we're trending way upwards because you see there's so many headlines about shootings of kids. You're seeing it all the time. But when you look at it, a big picture, it's actually going down, which is surprising. So we're going to do more digging to kind of change the narrative and get that information more prevalent. Common Sense Institute has done a really good job of highlighting this issue. It did so a year ago. Um, are you, are, do you, I guess, predict, George, that this may can encourage the legislature to rethink some of its policies? Oh, I want to believe that they're in a position to do that. I, I don't think that's going to happen under the current composition of the legislature. But as to the juvenile stuff, I, I should tell you this is how the sausage gets made for CSI. We talked about trying to do more research on the juvenile justice piece and what we're seeing. But there is such a deliberate um, obscurity that is created in the law for you to be able to access this information. It's very hard to come up with any metrics, and that's what CSI relies upon. It's very hard to come up with metrics to say this jurisdiction is doing this with juveniles, here's the violent crime in this jurisdiction, because they're so deliberately secret, because we're so invested in rehabilitation, which we should be, but it makes it harder for us to have the policy conversations we can have with adult crime. We'll have to keep this conversation going, but now it's time for our favorite part, which is Disgrace of the Week, also an opportunity to say something nice, but let's start off with bad guys first. Patty. Well, he's a popular bad guy at this table, but I'm not sure I've slapped him lately. Dave Williams, the Republican Party chair, and his latest antic talking about how gays in the party might be groomers, it's appalling. Colorado's Republican Party is not going to win a big office again until they actually behave like grown-ups. Yeah, it's like, let's go, Dave Williams. Let's get out of here. Um, George. Uh, listen, the preliminary hearing just wrapped up this week. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to bring him any notoriety, but uh, Dr. Death, the dentist who uh, poisoned his wife, we got to know a lot more about the details of that case and the steps that he took to poison not only his wife, but the mother of six children who are now left without any parent. Mm -hmm to help them get through life. And some of the, the, the searches, as a prosecutor, I couldn't help but smile. Some of these searches are ridiculous. He's searching in there how to murder someone and make it look like a heart attack. I mean, the, the word choice is redunculous. The only thing he didn't type in there was his wife's name and his own name. How can I, Dr. So-and-so, kill so-and-so? Um, so that case to me looks like a long, slow plea. That'll be a good thing. But the disgrace of the week is to think that we have people out there among us, respected people. We take, it, take them at face value. They get inside our mouths and clean our teeth sometime. And at the end of the day, they're harboring this dark heart where they can do such horrible things to people that they're supposed to love. Creepy. Chris? Mine's not a bad guy, but it's an unfortunate situation that we see unfolding in downtown Denver, and that's the office vacancy and buildings going into default. Um, First Republic just got, or excuse me, Republic Plaza just got out of um, default. And then we see that the cash register building, that, that beautiful, iconic kind of cash register top building in downtown Denver, it's, it's uh, the Wells Fargo building. Its value has dropped 35%, according to public records. A uh, little concerning when we know that people are working remotely um, and these buildings are sitting empty. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Elena. This is a lighthearted dig, but um, Governor Jared Polis this week gave us all secondhand embarrassment when he wrote this lyric-filled oh. letter welcoming Taylor Swift to town and dubbed it Jared's version. And I think he made like the entire state of Colorado cringe. It was, it was bad. It was, it was yeah. cute, but it was really bad. A little cringe-worthy. Yeah. And now for something nice, Patty. 
Well, thank you to all the public service servants who are leaving the Colorado Denver City Council, Mayor Hancock, who's leaving, and to Michael, Mike Johnston, who's giving a great party on Monday night. If you like local music, this is what we should be celebrating. Flowbots more all by Union Station Monday night, so go. Nice. George? Uh, listen, lost in all of this Taylor Swift, if that's her name, uh, hysteria that's going on is the fact that the Rockies are going to fill the stands, my guess is three days in a row, because my beloved Yankees are going to come there and play, and they're going to have an opportunity now to see the all-star MVP, Lias Diaz, who has a great backstory as a 32-year-old major league player who's really done nothing of particular note until he crushed a two-run homer in the all-star game against arguably the best closer in the, in the American League. But that's the only thing that could get me into that stadium, honestly. And, and I want this to remain positive, but I look forward to seeing the Rockies on the field while the Yankees win over the next three games. Never mention Yankees on this panel again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, this time of year, because I feel like the ambassador for the Western Slope is uh, Cattlemen's Days in Gunnison, Colorado. It is the 123rd Cattlemen's Days. It is the longest continuous running rodeo, and it's a PRCA rodeo, pro rodeo. And it is the most spectacular event. It's intimate. It's, uh, you, you have these hot days in Gunnison where it maybe gets above 85, but the UV is much hotter there, and the nights cool down, and you hear this wonderful music and watch some of the best performers in the PRCA in this little town of Colorado. That sounds lovely. Elena. I was really excited to see that the 2023 uh, Gerber baby named this week was from Colorado. Her name is uh, Madison Mendoza, and she won in part because of her uh, how much she looked like her mom when she was a baby. She's really adorable. You should Google her. And that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you, panelists, for your insights, and thank you all for watching Colorado Inside Out on PBS Channel 12. Check out pbs12.org or your YouTube channel and have yourself an unbelievable night.